Hello, and welcome to the second episode of our A to Z of Technology podcast. I'm Louise. And I'm Felicity. And we've got Seamus Cushley here in the studio today to talk about B for blockchain. So Seamus, thank you for coming in. It's the kind of topic that people get a bit scared of. It's one of those terms where people are like, what on earth is that? <laughs> so where would you start on that question? Well, how would I start on blockchain? Yes, it's absolutely misunderstood and confused. And lots of people think they know what it is, and very few people do. Very simply, blockchain is an invention and an interesting conversation. We have invented a technology for the first time in history that allows two people, two machines or two corporates to share information and data without a third party to verify either party. And it's a really simple concept. So let me bring that to life. For those who've bought a property before, you had two third parties of trust. You had the solicitor for your contracts and the bank for your money. Assume that you could then do that transaction without either of those parties. That's what blockchain gives you the opportunity to do. That's it in a nutshell. Okay, that would be dreamy. So when we're talking about trading and cryptocurrencies, that's what most people, I think, associate Bitcoin with. Could you explain in a bit more detail what's actually behind this and how it all works? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one thing we need to really put to the side is the misconception that, that blockchain is Bitcoin. Uh, think of Bitcoin as the first implementation of blockchain, the same that you know, the car was the first implementation of the combustion engine. So it's a technology mm. that can be invented upon. So cryptocurrencies are there to allow us to exchange or trade. The technology allows us to develop as many currencies as we, as we want for as many communities as we want. So I think one of the use cases that really helped me to understand blockchain, firstly, the diamond one, everyone yes. talks about that one, right? So yep. trying to take blood diamonds out of the system by assuring where those stones have come from. Yep. But the food supply chain one is so interesting as well it could help us avoid the next sort of horse meat scandal from a few years ago? Absolutely. So there's lots of companies looking at the food supply chain and understanding. So tuna was another huge example. Um, and the food, the food thing around horse meat versus, versus actually um, cow meat in your meat. So there's lots of companies looking at this supply chain challenge. Anywhere you have multiple parties handling something, it becomes more complex. The key thing that we've looked at over the last number of years in the food supply chain is it's not about so much the transparency of the happy path scenario, it's a traceability. So let's say you mm -hmm. go into a store, you buy chicken or meat, and it's not what you expected to buy. The store needs to be able to trace that from the store to the warehouse to the arbitrage right through to the farm. Mm -hmm. So it's a traceability that the food supply is really interested in. The challenge we have today is that this is an implementation of technology which costs money. So where you look at supply chain around food, you have to look at where there's a margin to introduce new business models. So the one that's really interesting to me is something that's high value, whether that's like whiskey is a really interesting example. So the whiskey industry with the margins that it has, the fact that it's sort of high-end product that people will pay above and beyond for, it's a luxury good. That's an interesting application of this technology where you introduce transparency, traceability, and then the whole trust conversation as well as part of that. But I think there's a really honest conversation to have around supply chain and the margins. Does it justify the application of any new technology, just not blockchain? What do you think some of the kind of most exciting future applications for this technology could be? You know, there's people talking all the time about it could be the magic solution to this. Obviously, it's not going to be the magic solution to all of our problems, but are there any kind of, I don't know, societal good examples that might be really interesting? Yeah, so, I mean, yes, technology is a tool, right? So you have to fix a proper problem and a real problem. So where I'm really interested in this, where a more holistic perspective is community-driven business models and community-driven um, industries, and you mentioned tech for good. Mm -hmm. So what this technology allows us to do is to form new communities digitally all over the world. Um, and for people to trust people based on the technology and the consent around that technology as opposed to um, having to trust any other institution. And so where I'm seeing a really interesting one is at a city level, 
the development of city currencies to develop um, contribution models. So where you contribute to your community and therefore you get awarded in a currency or token mm -hmm. and then you then contrib contribute that back to your community. So it gives an opportunity to drive economic development at a regional or community-based level. That's one really interesting application. So there might be like a London coin or something. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. we had the Brixton Pound. It has been here for a number mm, yeah. of years. Um, so it was based on centralised technology. Um, the concept still held, right? It was to develop community-based contribution and a sense of identity and a sense of economic development. And that whole broader piece around community-based currencies, or referred to as complementary currencies, has been around for hundreds of years. But this technology allows us to do that on demand with a level of transparency never possible before. So we're seeing that now in lots of the smart cities conversations that's come to the fore. So that seems like a really good point at which we can cut to a conversation which Felicity you had a couple of days ago over Skype and that was with Niall Dennehy who is the co-founder of AidTech, a blockchain for good startup. Hi Niall, thanks so much for speaking to me today. So we're doing an episode all about blockchain today so I wondered if you could just tell me a little bit about AidTech. Um, and the problem that you were looking to solve with it, I guess. I can indeed, and uh, great to be on the show, Felicity. To tell you a little bit more about AidTech, I've got to go back to the year 2009, um, believe it or not, when my good friend, my co-founder, and the CEO of AidTech, he ran a marathon called the Marathon des Sable in the Moroccan desert. Um, he ran 151 miles. He raised a big sum of money in the process, but the money went missing. We weren't able to trace where the money ended up. Hence, we had a transparency to the uh, delivery of entitlements. Initially, that was international aid. We've since expanded it to welfare, um, to remittances. We've got a brand new product released just before Christmas called Trace Donate, which allows members of the public to trace their donations, see what the money was being spent on. And really, AidTech is empowering through transparency. But the key thing that we're doing is we're bringing new insights driven by data for enterprises, governments, and consumers. And happy to, to share a little bit more about how we're doing that the tech that we use and I guess the uh, the way that we're doing it. Yeah, no, it's such an interesting story. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting to hear all these kind of startup stories, that moment when you thought, God, I could do this better. Was there kind of consumer demand that you were seeing for this sort of thing as well, like more broadly than, um, than your co-founder? Is it something that you think people are really interested in? You know, where is my money going when I donate to these kind of things? It really is. Um, we, we, we recently found out that back in the year 2008, or about the same time that Joe did the Marathon de Sabla, people had quite a lot of uh, trust in charities and NGOs. Um, and according to a lot of the surveys in Ireland, that was running at just above 80% in general across all of the different um, proof points that we could find. But what happened was with, um, I guess, with a lot of scandals which have hit the industry in the, uh, the last decade, that tr trust, depending on which um, survey you, you look at nowadays, has plummeted to around the 50% mark. So there's a bit of a trend globally that people have a little less trust in institutions. Um, we can probably, we could talk about the geopolitics all day, but we believe that technology is a really good way to address that. And we thought blockchain, given the nature of the technology, given that it's permanent, it's immutable, you cannot change the record of events once they happen, was the perfect technology to do that. So to give you one example, um, we've built an app. Um, you can go to tracedonate.com today. And you can find our consumer app there. We call it Trace Donate, unsurprisingly. And what you can do with that technology is you can make a donation to, uh, to an organization. That could be an NGO. That could be a charity. That could be a corporate. Um, we've got a couple of big banks now at the moment. They're using the technology. And they see that as a way to drive engagement with their staff. But effectively, what we do is we enable people to make a donation. We digitize their donation into a real-world product, good, or service. 
Uh, to give you an example, we're now live with the uh, with the Red Cross here in Dublin. And what we're enabling people to do is to to send entitlements to individuals and to organizations around the world. One concrete, tangible example that I can give you is we are helping to raise money for tuberculosis kits in India. Um, and what we've done with the technology is we've digitized a TB kit. We enable a member of the public to make a donation. What that will do then is we trigger a payment with a payment gateway and we create a digital asset called TB kit. We then send that to the organization and we can send that equally to an individual. They redeem that then at a, a distribution point on the ground in India and you as a donor, that could be you Felicity, you will get a notification to tell you that your donation was spent by an individual to buy a TB kit at a location. But what we're keen to point out is that the people then who obtain the TB kit that they have complete ownership of their own data and they can choose what they want to reveal or what they don't. But the whole idea is to restore trust in institutions. In this case, it can be a charity, but more broadly speaking, the technology can really be applied to a broad spectrum of, um, of industries. It's so interesting, you know, building more transparency into this kind of donation chain. Do you think this kind of thing would work with any other technologies or was blockchain kind of the thing that stood out to you as the only way of solving this problem? It can. It can work with pretty much any technology. But if you think about it, then basically anybody, people in the industry will know that anything you can do with a blockchain, you can arguably do it with a database. And right now you can argue because of the scaling issues that you could arguably do it better with um, a database. But the thing that we believe in is the game changer with blockchain is the, I guess, we're distributing trust. And if you think about it, then if you are enabling a pool of people, take that example that I spoke of, if you are the... Um, if you are the donor, if you're a beneficiary, if you're a charity, um, if you want everybody to be aligned and to be incentivized to ensure that they're all viewing the same data, that that data is distributed and the trust would be, we believe that's where blockchain comes in and why it's a game changer in that everybody is viewing the same shared record of events um, and that, that cannot be overwritten. It's permanent, it's immutable, it's non-corruptible. And that really is the, uh, we think the game changer. So you mentioned that really interesting example earlier about um, tuberculosis. Are there any other kind of real use cases um, in other countries around the world um, that you've been helping in? Yeah, um, and that's something we've been focused on from day one is to bring uh, the real real use cases to the uh, the technology because there, there aren't that many of them out there. Um, maybe I can give you a couple more that we're, we're quite proud of. Um, one really cool thing that happened last year in 20, uh, 2018 um, was we delivered um, if you pardon the one, the very first baby on the blockchain. And what we did was we partnered with a Dutch NGO on the ground in Tanzania. And what we did was we gave individual mothers a, um, a, a digital identity. They were able to control their own data. But what we did with the blockchain, with the, with the smart contract in the background, was we took and we mapped out the ideal journey that a pregnant woman should go on when she's up before she gives birth um, to, a, to a child. And back to your point about blockchain for good, what we did at the time was we looked at the uh, sustainable development goals, which are backed by the UN, backed by 193 countries. And we thought, look, we have got to make an impact. We've got to find a way for medical entitlements to get to the people who need them most. And what we were able to do was to digitize entitlements like, like folic acid, um, like iron tablets, like mebendazole, different checkups that the women should get. We were able to use a smart contract to deploy them to the women. To, so that they could then go to their clinic 
they could obtain the entitlements that they were supposed to get. Um, but more importantly, then back to the point about the data, what we were able to show in that case to the Dutch NGO that we we're working with, the German government who were funding the project was a snapshot at one point in time um, in a really remote part of Tanzania as to what was happening and were the women getting or were they not getting the correct entitlements. And with the data then, the idea of this transparent and trusted data that we're generating, um, the data that cannot be changed, the clean data, as we like to refer to it then, they were able to tell at one stage that the women weren't getting the correct entitlements that they should have been receiving. Um, and believe it or not, then they were able to make a decision that they needed to ship more medical entitlements to, the, to that clinic in a remote part of Tanzania based on the data that they could trust and that they had not got access to beforehand. Um, and to paint the picture, what happened before we came along, and what still happens in, the, in Tanzania, is that the women who come to a clinic, they've got a paper booklet, it's written in Swahili, and every time they get their entitlement, like the folic acid or like the ferrous sulfate that I mentioned, the doctor or the midwife would literally check the book with a piece of, uh, with, with a, a pen or a pencil. They would then take that back to the capital city. They would input that into a database. Um, we had been told that it was, um, it, it was likely that, you know, the database was being tampered with. But again, be, back to what we can do with blockchain because of the permanency and the immutability, really what we did was we generated this transparent and trustworthy data that the governments could look at and they could ensure that the money was being spent where it should be. Great, thank you so much. It was great, look, thank you. Great to speak, Felicity. I appreciate all your time. So that was a really interesting conversation you had there, Felicity, looking at specifically transparency and accountability in the aid sector. If we go back to you, Seamus, what are you most excited about seeing in the next 12 months or so when it comes to blockchain? Personally, it's the sort of calming of the, of the wave of um, enthusiasm. So we're kind of going through this um, disillusionment piece. The cryptocurrency market is dying down. Mm. ICOs had their first wave. Things went wrong. But the application itself, you know, the ICO as a funding mechanism, still a, a fine construct. It just needs to mature. The ability to create currencies for particular demands still makes sense. So I think we're going through a maturing of the conversation and a refinement of where it applies. And I think that's a very healthy conversation because when I joined this, I suppose, this area five or six years ago, uh, there was too many people solving all of the world's problems with this technology. I think we're going to get to real problems being solved in this year, uh, next two years possibly. I think this is quite a difficult topic to get started on. Is there anything that you would recommend people looking into, where to find more information about blockchain? Uh, how, how, how to get started? Yeah. Um, it's like most things um, in terms of technology, yes, there's lots of, if you search for blockchain, you'll get millions and millions of hits. And so you'll get quite confused quite quickly. And mm. like everything new, there's lots of people making it more complicated by design because that's how they get paid. Um, I suppose the best way to start understanding this application is to go back to its origin. So if you think of the origin of the Bitcoin technology as, as its first application, it was allowing two people to transfer something they owned. And, that, and that's kind of the essence of power and the value really around this. So I would, I, would get a, I, would get, I would sign up for a wallet, I would buy a few pounds worth of cryptocurrency, find a friend and then transfer that and just understand the service that that provides and the, and the speed in which that interaction happens and then start to broaden your remit from there because everything has really began its origin at the cryptocurrency space. Is it true that this technology had a kind of shady, dark beginning? I read um, Jamie Bartlett's Dark Web book recently, um, which was fascinating, yeah. but it kind of seemed like Bitcoin and crypto sort of came from the underground, as it were. Absolutely, and it absolutely did. So there's the early adopters of Bitcoin. So if you think Bitcoin's, what, 10 years old now? Um, 
So we're going back 2008. Uh, it was born out of a a movement sort of post-2008 and the financial crash that things could be better. Um, and I suppose the technology really evolved and this currency evolved where you could transact value without being monitored to some extent. Um, but the whole aspect of being anonymous, and the, even on the Bitcoin network, is somewhat of a mis misconception unless you're technically very astute. So lots of it came through, yes, early transactions on the dark web, dark nets, around for particular parties transacting particular illicit goods. Um, so there's part of that in a sort of a trusted way that sort of underlines the value and the technology itself. Those individuals obviously trade certain goods and properties and make lots of money of that. So the fact that they use this technology in the early days um, is part of that. But what they didn't realize, and I suppose lots of people don't realize, is that it's, it's pseudo-anonymous technology. You can always transact and trace. And if you look right to, back to the Mt. Gox, which was one of the big sort of mm -hmm. horror stories of the early parts of the application of this technology, um, lots of those Bitcoins are still locked in certain wallets or accounts and haven't moved since, and they're fully monitored by all um, authorities. So those coins will never be able to be moved without someone being aware of that. So there's a huge transparency to activity on the network, and your identity is somewhat protected, but not, not uh, the dark web type concept. So do you think some of that shady past might be affecting people's opinions of the technology now? Absolutely. So when I, I mean, I started, started in what, 2014, Bitcoin was the conversation and crypto and Litecoin and then became Ripple and all these other cryptocurrency alternatives. Um, I suppose about uh, 2016, uh, Bitcoin was a, was a bad word, dirty word, you weren't allowed to use it, right? It was all about blockchain technology and it was kind of reborn as something different. Mm -hmm. um, and then we go full circle to 2018, it was all back to crypto and ICOs. So it's got back to its origin. So there absolutely is um, waves or generations of misconception and misunderstanding. And the more and more I suppose we start to apply this to real, to real life, it'll become invisible. And I think that's the key component about any technology. It's only good when you don't know it exists. And that's what we're aiming for in lots of technology. So I think there's been quite a lot of hype around this technology and some people are quite uh, cynical about its potential uses. So are there some real world applications that you're working on at the moment? Uh, absolutely. So I think, yes, it's right to say that lots of the early uh, hype was mis misled. Um, lots of what we did probably two to three years ago was experimental driven, lab based, small proofs of concept, proofs of value yeah. that helped prove that this was technology is worth playing for. Um, what we're at tonight in terms of, uh, from a PwC perspective, we have a number of clients using this technology. We have one that's about to go public, hopefully in 2019. And the use case it's solving for is really digital assets, the ability for individuals to collect digital cards. If you remember the thing about uh, anything, whether Pokemon cards or soccer cards, anything for the to digitize that experience and to look at a global market around that. So I think that's a really interesting application and it wouldn't have been possible without blockchain because going back to the whole conversation around community-driven business models. Um, something we're working internally again is focused on this trust transparency piece. So we identified a, a pain point over the last number of years um, for professionals who um, earn qualifications and achievements, when they go for a new employment or they begin to look for opportunity, they can't prove or qualify that without background checks and issuance checks. So this pain point we've seen a number of clients. So we've developed a platform approach that called Smart Credentials and its focus is allowing you as the owner of a credential to share that with a prospective employer under certain conditions. Um, for a particular opportunity, and that's already been pre-signed or pre-certified by an issuing authority. So it really reduces the time and money it takes to onboard new people from an employer's perspective, and as an employee, really leads into this future of work concept where I can work for multiple employers over a given year and move between opportunities quite easily. But we see smart credentials or the ability to passport your credentials or earnings or achievements as a fundamental principle of future of work. So it allow, allow employers to kind of 
check that you are who you say you are and you have the qualifications you say you do. Yes. I suppose employers must spend quite a lot of money calling up universities or whatever. And, that, and that's where we sort of, it was kind of born in that university conversation, right? So mm. to, to come into a new employer of the size of PwC or from my previous employers, that's a background check that takes days or weeks. Um, but if I can provide a digital passport that says I have a qualification or, or a degree and you can trust it because the university signed it last month, then it reduces a huge amount of effort there. But that's just the, build, the first building block of this. We see then um, that building onto just everything that you do professionally is in this wallet, your experience. Um, so we're seeing really interesting applications as in aviation for pilots and mechanics, mm -hmm. um, in the health industry for health professionals and medics. And So again, the application, the ability to, for you to own something as an individual, that's yours, that's your value if you like, and then to passport that across different employment opportunities on your, on your, on your grounds. I think it's really an interesting business because up until now you had to really trust everybody else for you to get a job. And the identity side of that is yes. really interesting yes. as well. <laughs> so like you could um, potentially put your kind of birth, marriage, death certificates on that kind of thing as well. You could absolutely. So this whole identity piece again has been, um, I suppose, aligned with the whole blockchain discussion and is highly emotive for many reasons. So we need to divorce our um, sovereign identity from our digital identity. And I think in the digital world, we have many identities for many, many reasons. So the identity that you protect to go onto a social pl platform versus the one that you do to your banking or payments are slightly different identities. But yes, the technology provides us the ability to have multiple profiles for many, many different uses. One of them could be to hold your certificates around marriage, death, land ownership, property ownership. So anything that you believe is an asset, which today is just data, to be honest, would put you in control of your own data. Thanks for coming in to chat to us today, Seamus. Um, where can people follow you on social media? Pleasure to come in and have a conversation about blockchain and its application. Uh, I'm easy to find on any social media. It's just Seamus Cushley uh, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Um, interesting for a discussion on Twitter anytime around this technology. <laughs> Great. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Um, next up, C for cybersecurity. We're going to be hearing from a few different people on various aspects of all things cyber, Louise's favourite topic. Please also don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast app you use. Also, feel free to rate and review what you've heard so far. And I finally got Louise on Twitter. So you can follow her on at LouTagTech and I'm on at Felicity Main. We'll see you next time.